Distress in real estate is prevalent in industry chatter and in the headlines, but when it comes to sales, it's still not much of a factor. In fact, less than 2% of sales are distressed asset sales in the US, according to Jim Costello, who's the chief economist at investment research MSCI's Real Assets team. My name's Miriam Hall, and Jim is my guest on BizNow Reports today. MSCI data suggests there were 80 billion worth of commercial real estate loans in distress last quarter. Another 215 billion are at risk of distress. And Jim says there's a whole other category of buildings that might be underwater. We'll see more stories of distress before the year end, but it's, it is something that people have been curious about because it's not coming in at the same pace as what we saw following the global financial crisis. If you think about the timing of the global financial crisis, that started December of 2007. And within a few years, we had a record amount of sales that were tied up in distress activities, up to roughly 20% in one quarter. Within a few years, the pandemic started March of 2020. We're three years and some change on since then. And distress last quarter represented only 1.7% of sales. So from the initial shock to today, there's just not as much of a response. So less than 2% of sales that are taking place are as a result of distress. That's right. That's right. It's very low. Right. But I think part of it is due to the fact that we have a different type of distress this time through than last time. First of all, let's talk about the capital sources. In the run-up to the financial crisis, the CMBS market was a primary lender. It was, we don't have firm figures on this, but I think it was about 60% of the market was tied up in CMBS loans. That was a huge share. The issue was that if a loan goes bad and you were working with one of those CMBS version 1.0 originators, the special servicers had no room, no wiggle room if somebody ran into trouble with the loan. A a missed payment, there was no way to try to renegotiate the terms of the deal and uh, restructure the loan, modify it, extend it, put some other type of capital in. You could either become current or default. This time through, CMBS 2.0, there's more flexibility, but they also weren't the biggest component of the market. The banks were the biggest component of the market this time through in the run-up and in 2021, 2022. But it wasn't as toxic on the lending side. You didn't have these 95% IO loans uh, forming a big part of the market this time through. You weren't as aggressive going in. So that's also different. But then the banks have more leeway to work with borrowers. They're not being pressured by their regulators to mark everything to market and get it off the books right away. So that just creates a longer term uh, potential for this to happen. It's not sort of all at once. It's going to dribble out a little bit at a time. Uh, based on just the fact that the structure of the market is different today. So let's look at some of the figures that MSCI has put out. So there's about 80 billion of commercial real estate loans that were in distress in the third quarter, which is the highest 
volume of distress in the industry since 2013. But what kind of percentage um, of that, of the overall debt that is out there, would you say that is? I mean, how much does that make up of the debt? Because it sounds like a really high number, but let's compare it to what debt's out there. Um, off the top of my head, I, I don't have an answer on that, uh, partly because we know the originations. We know when banks and insurance companies and lenders are originating, and other lenders are originating loans, but we don't have a firm estimate of the stock of loans because we've only been tracking it from around 2012 onward. So there were loans that were on their books from ahead of time, and that we just don't know that. Now, the Fed in the flow of funds database does have a really good estimate of total commercial real estate lending in the United States, but it's a slightly different universe than we're looking at because they're looking, we're looking at everything priced 2.5 million and up. They're looking at everything that, that former gas station outside of Tupelo that somebody's using as like a, a barbecue joint, maybe it's sold for $400,000. We're not tracking that. But there is a lot of that kind of stuff in the U.S. economy, and it gets rolled up into uh, all those estimates. So they have a much higher number. So it's it's hard to it's hard to put a reference on that. Let's talk about it in in another way. Let's talk about it just in total, mm-hmm. terms of total deal volume. Uh, so yeah. uh, just to give a sense of of the relative size, uh, in the third quarter of 2023, 8.9 billion of commercial real estate in the United States sold. So if we're talking about, you know, outstanding distress in the 80 billion figure, it's like one quarter's worth of deal activity is out there distressed. That's a lot. That's a big number, isn't it? It's a big number. And it's not it's not as big as the number we saw in 2013, but it's it's also, I think, understating some of the challenges that are out there because that distress number we're publishing that's just properties where there has been some sort of notification of a default or a delinquency and, and something that has been tagged as a problem now. But I think there are other issues where there are going to be loans that are going to be problematic, that, that they will have problems once it comes up for refinancing, where market prices have fallen since the loan was originated and somebody's going to have to do a cash-in refinancing if they want a new loan on the property or they're going to have to do something a little more creative. And and I think there's a lot of that that's out there that just is not being tracked in any of this yet. So let's have a look at how you define distress. So you said it's, it's flagged in some way. How much variation is there with the level of distress that a building is facing? Because distress is a pretty blanket term. Yeah, it is a blanket term. So what do we mean about distress? When we say distress, what does that mean? We've got a couple different categories on that. When we say distress, in the CMBS world, it's like troubled or in special servicing loans. It's anything where we have direct knowledge, distress at the property level, meaning known announcements of bankruptcy, default, court administration, as well as any you know significant publicly reported issues, uh, you know such as a tenant saying that they're going to uh, close up shop, or you know some sort of issue around a tenant being liquidated, that's all the stuff that you know, would do some sort of propose some sort of challenge at the property level. And we've got this potential distress uh, threshold as well. That stuff where there's possible future uh, distress type events, which will come from an actual loan delinquency, you know, missed, a missed payment, some sort of forbearance put in place, 
or maybe for like a new project, slow lease up of a newly built project or slow sellout of condos from a building. So those would be uh, the, the things where it's an indicator that it might be a problem in the future and end up in that distress category. So that potential distress that you have, there's about $215 billion worth of commercial property that, that's in that category at that risk of distress, potential distress. Right. Um, how much of that could manifest into real distress? Um, and are there things that you know, owners can do to try and avoid that? Well, it's, it's, it's a big number, but I think there's an even bigger number out there. I can't quantify it, but I think there's an even bigger number of stuff that is potentially underwater that the market prices have fallen and they're going to have to put some cash in, uh, have to do some sort of cash in refinancing to uh, refinance that uh, asset in the future. So there's uh, even, even a larger potential, potential distress out there. <laughs> so, so there's, there's issues out there and people have to be thinking about these issues. What do you do though? So you've, you've got a property and you've got, uh, you know, some sort of delinquency situation, you know, you've been negotiating with the property, uh, with the lender around forbearance and maybe some restructuring. Yeah. What do you do in that case uh, when when the bill comes due and you're actually at that point when you have to make some sort of payment? Uh, you've got you've got a couple options. One, maybe you provide some of your own equity. You know, there are people that are starting to sell a few properties, um, and sometimes they'll sell one of the better properties where they still have a little bit of equity left. So they could take that equity and then use it to rescue themselves out of the, the property where they have to do a cash in refinancing to get it to market. That, that has been happening. That is one option, but you know, it's an expensive option, but it works. Another expensive option is maybe to raise some additional capital, provide some sort of uh, preferred uh, equity solution to another investor to make up the difference between the equity you have and the equity that the bank needs to make a loan today. And that, that you're losing some upside on the investment, but you stay whole and you don't uh, you know, get a bad reputation with lenders at that point. So they're willing to work with you in the future. You know, the other option is to you know, get involved in some sort of sale of the asset, maybe some sort of managed sale uh, so that, you know, again, you can maintain a good reputation that way with the lender. You're not just sort of throwing the keys at them and saying, hey, it's your problem now, see ya. Uh, but then that last option, that fourth option, is certainly out there, and uh, there are going to be some of those. But you know, the lenders themselves don't want to end up in the bank world. They don't want to end up owning the properties in a real estate-owned situation. They they're lenders. They're not property managers. If they wanted to be property managers, they would have chosen a different career, and they can lose value by by getting involved in that kind of foreclosure process. So as much as they can, they want the original owner to figure it out and just keep paying them. Uh, but that's, that's uh, uh, sometimes that just won't work. So it sounds like there's actually three categories. There's currently in distress, the $80 billion. There's at risk of potential distress, $215 billion. And then this unknown sort of uber distress almost, yeah. would we say, right. it, where it could potentially just be a totally upside-down building. Potentially, but it, 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 a totally upside-down building would probably have more of an indicator of that. I think it's more of the stuff that, not totally upside-down, but you know, slightly, you know, where somebody has to bring in some additional capital of some sort uh, to refinance. There's going to be more of that. 
and and it, but it's not going to hit right away because those properties are still cash flowing they're able to pay off the current loan it's all about when the loan comes due and they need to, unless there's some other technical breach of covenants along the way uh if you're still cash flowing you can sort of wait and just see what happens next uh although even then even then there is another option i forgot to talk about uh let's say you need to refinance today and given how your property has been performing you want to stay in the deal but it's simply not going to work given how how uh, high mortgage rates are and how uh, low the typical ltv is from from the traditional lenders some investors have been opting to go the private uh, credit route and get loans uh, that are typically bridge loans short-term loans one or two years expensive debt but it gives them it's sort of paying anything to roll the dice one more time it's it's a bridge loan they've there is an expectation on the part of many investors that we are in an interest rate environment that will change in the future if you look at the forward curve on SOFR, it does dip into the future you know two years out that is what the market is expecting so some of those borrowers are opting to work with those expensive bridge lenders to kind of paper over any problems in the near term hoping that they can refinance the lower cost loans in a couple years and so that is another option that has been playing out rxr they got an extension well they got a modification on a big loan on a massive massive loan nearly a billion dollars on a, a property on sixth avenue um and they got a a, a sort of a equity infusion they they put up 220 million dollars i mean i guess that's probably kind of one example of the kind of approaches that people are taking yeah those kind of loan modifications and that's the kind of thing that this time through there's more ability to do that kind of stuff than there was following the financial crisis if you know, i didn't see who they were working with on on the loan but if it was a bank or an insurance company uh, or even some of the the debt funds on the private cr uh, uh, credit side, there was more room for them to move and work through things. And, and, and so, and again, if I'm one of those players, for the most part, I don't want to end up owning the property. I just want to get paid on the loan. I'm going into this looking for the slow, stable yield of uh, of a loan. That's the investment objective I have. Now, there are some debt funds that did get into this thing with the loan to own attitude. I mean, I've seen a few offering memorandums from groups that were uh, saying that, listen, we're gonna make loans. And if they go bad, that's good for us because it allows us to get the property at a lower basis. So there were some folks that were thinking like that. Uh, but by and large, lenders are lenders. They're, they're not managers of assets and they, they want their, they're getting into this simply to uh, get the yield of a loan, not uh, to end up owning a property. You know, most of the distressed buildings, as we call them, are office properties, but there are some multifamily as well. Now, multifamily has traditionally been seen as the stable asset class, but do you think that we're going to see a jump in multifamily distress? Yeah, it's it's interesting. We have a big number of distressed loans and potentially distressed loans for multifamily. And people see that and they're like, oh, well, hold on, I thought that was a safe asset class. And there's a lot of institutional money 
that is moving into the apartment sector. It is suddenly higher though, but it's not necessarily a bad sign for uh, the apartment sector. It's, it's, it's an indicator of just how big the apartment market is. Uh, it is the single largest investment class uh, for commercial property. Uh, it, it's, uh, and so there's an issue of the scale there that is, is, is driving this. Uh, in the third quarter, for instance, uh, the apartment sector was 30 billion of the 89 billion in total of all investment activity. Uh, and that compares with like the office sector, which was you know 10.6 billion. So uh, the the potential distress is out there. Part of it is just reflective of the fact that you have so much more <laughs> that it, it, it's uh, even if it's a small number, it's going to look bigger just because it's such a big market. Now that said, there is some uh, asset level distress out there in the apartment market. Uh, the the typical kind of distress situation in the financial crisis was uh, was financial distress of an asset. It was a borrower who came in, was too highly leveraged, uh, using cheap debt to uh, purchase an asset. And when the economy uh, turned around and uh, the cost of capital changed, they went underwater. Uh, the apartment market Fundamentals look good. You know, occupancy is still tight. You know, the rents are falling in a few locations. Prices are starting to fall uh, in line with the increased uh, cost of debt. But it, it wasn't in that uh, excessive situation for the most part going into the, uh, uh, the end of 2022. But there were a few cases and there were a few big cases of financial distress in the apartment market. Think of uh, the apartment syndicators. There's a whole bunch of press stories of uh, certain managers I won't name uh, who were raising money uh, from boomers on Facebook and Instagram. Uh, I'm not a boomer, but I saw those ads too. And I was always just, just dumbfounded that people could try and raise money that way in a crowdfunding kind of model. Uh, and I mean, I was always wondering what their compliance uh, <laughs> regulations were because no institutional investor would make the kind of statements they were making publicly on like Facebook. In any case, some of those groups uh, have now famously gone belly up and that is going to be a certain type of distress as well. But that's the type of distress that is much more like the opportunity set that investors faced after the financial crisis uh, where you, know, you have an otherwise cash flowing asset that was managed poorly, that it had the wrong level of debt on it. And there may be a lot of interest from folks to come in and solve those kind of situations. But you noted that the office market had a high level of distress. That's a totally different story because that office distress, that's not financial distress like we saw after the financial crisis. That is fundamental distress. So you need a different skill set to do something with that. I mean, after the financial crisis, the skill set to manage distress really lent itself to uh, buyers from the private equity world. That, that final sale of distressed assets, when we look at the composition of who was buying those things, 
After the financial crisis, it was a lot of the private equity people. Uh, it was a bunch of suits from New York flying into town, picking up an asset uh, at, for pennies on the dollar, you know, through a note sale or whatever, and then uh, you know, putting a proper level of debt on it and hopping the flight back home and then just waiting for the markets to stabilize, sell it off at a gain, and there's your return. This time through, it's a dead mall outside of Cleveland. It's an empty office building in Midtown South that needs a tremendous amount of CapEx to make it viable and, and provide some occupancy. So it's not the same type of situation. These are buildings where the income is challenged. And the people who have been buying this stuff are much more in the local developer, owner, operator type of world. It's really the kind of people who know how to swing a hammer. And that's really what it's going to take for some of these distressed assets this time to make things viable. Someone's going to have to come in there with a plan for how they manage the assets properly and maybe do some targeted uh, renovation and redevelopment uh, to make it economically viable. Totally different skill set than what was needed following the financial crisis. So except, except for that, you know, the stuff that was highly leveraged, like in the apartment market, that's still cash flowing. It's going to take a different group of uh, uh, managers to make that uh, work. Yeah, I did write a story um, earlier this year about how different it is. You know, the, the skill set, as you say, is different. And I don't want to say it was easy after 2008, 2009, but definitely sounds like you need a whole other kind of complex abilities at your fingertips um, to, right. to approach this current scenario. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Lending, you know, is sliding as well, and there's a lot of bad headlines about lending. I read in the Wall Street Journal this week that the volume of commercial real estate loans that's held by banks, which is, of course, the larger sorts of debt financing, that's actually, that went down in the first two weeks of October, and other types of lenders are pulling away too. I mean, how acute would you say that problem is if lenders are like, this isn't a place we want to be? Yeah, it's, it's hard to tell. Uh, here's the thing. The banks are one part of the market, Okay. And there are other lenders out there. And, and the challenge is that there's some information from the Fed that's more frequent on, on banks. And then, but there's other, there's other portions of the market and we don't get a read that's as frequent. Uh, you know, we're, we're, we're collecting all this information from life insurance companies, CMBS, agencies, all that stuff matters. Uh, it is the case that you, you look at the Fed data and there has been a, a slowing in uh, the stock of debt from the H8 survey, which that, that, that slowing in, in the growth of the stock, that can mean two things. It can mean they are uh, retiring loans. You know, you come up with a maturity and you're not originating something new, uh, you know, or, you know, you're just, uh, uh, you're originating, but then the older loans are dying off faster. So uh, we don't know. We only know the stock. We don't know. They have no way of showing what's maturing or what's uh, uh, um, or what's being originated. But it definitely, it, it's a problem if banks are are seeing a total reduction of of loans underway. Because at some level, that means there's just less credit available, and and that's a real issue. If we look at uh, the, the, the financial crisis, the SNL crisis in the you know, early 90s, and uh, the Great Depression, 
those were the three times when returns for commercial real estate fell at double digit rates. And what those all had in common was that we had a liquidity trap where people wouldn't loan because they saw asset values falling. And you know because borrowers couldn't get a loan, they had to sell at a loss and asset values fell more and it was a vicious downward spiral. If we start to see a total reduction in debt availability, I mean, you take away 60% of the capital stack, you're gonna have a bad day. But the, the banks, again, they're not everything. The private capital, you know, the private credit strategies, some of those folks have been stepping up. Maybe it's not enough to cover everything that the banks did, uh, but if it helps a few folks bridge the gap for a few years, that's, that's okay. But I think it's also, you have to be careful, if you're talking about banks in general, you have to think about the different scale of banks. Uh, banks might be pulling back temporarily to get a hold of uh, their, their portfolios and figure out what they were doing. The originations data that we have were only updated through the second quarter. So it's a bit of a backward look. We don't know the third quarter numbers even at this point. But they, the small local banks captured a record share of all commercial mortgage originations in the first quarter of 2023. This is all before Silicon Valley Bank, First Republic, Signature Bank, and then in the second quarter, it was the sharpest fall in their originations ever. Uh, the, the, just the, the lending fell off. Those lenders were more focused on certain asset types and locations than other lenders. A small local bank in Salt Lake City is not doing office loans on Fifth Avenue in Manhattan. They're doing loans in their local area. And, and, and so those secondary tertiary markets, uh, they may be forcing, facing more of a challenge from all this, given that you know, that's where those uh, lenders are more active. Those smaller markets also tended to be a bit more uh, heavily dependent on bank lending. If, if I am a life insurance company uh, with offices in uh, uh, you know, suburban New Jersey or suburban Chicago, I am uh, uh, making loans across the United States under a variety of uh, uh, loan terms, but typically it's bigger loans because I need to put a lot of capital out. Uh, so it tends to be bigger assets and bigger markets. Same thing with uh, many of the uh, the old line debt funds that were out there. Old line meaning before this crisis started. Um, uh, there's just a variety of different types of debt funds that are out there. They tended to be big slugs of capital uh, because they didn't have a, a, a wide distribution network they needed to put a lot of money at work into bigger loans. So you know, if there is a bit of a pullback from these smaller banks, uh, I, I wonder if that might have more of an impact on these smaller markets that just depended on that source of debt capital. Earlier this year, you looked at the bid-ask spread, um, basically how much people want for a property um, compared to how much people say they're willing to pay. In July, it was about 11% for multifamily and 8% for office retail, and warehouses were much closer together, only 2%. So sellers were only asking 2% more than what buyers are willing to pay. 
one side is going to have to give up eventually, but how long could it take? Because it's hard to imagine sellers are going to drop their price by 11% too quickly. Has the gap closed or widened since July, would you say? Oh, it's widened. And, and, it's getting and, even, and, even wider? Yeah, and what it gets down to is that uh, if I'm a buyer, I want to underwrite every worst-case scenario when I'm purchasing an asset at this stage because there's a reputational risk. Uh, in the institutional world, uh, nobody wants to be that buyer that everybody remembers uh, came in and bought something at the top of the market and then asked themselves, hey, five years later at, at Priya, uh, hey, remember Joe? Yeah, he's that guy that bought uh, that asset at the record high price before that final collapse of the market. What happened to Joe? What industry is he in now? You know, nobody, nobody wants to be Joe. Uh, and, and so there, there is a reputational risk, and the buyers are going to underwrite the worst case scenarios. They don't have to buy necessarily. Uh, there are some folks that you know still have to get money out, and they'll be selective on what they do. But you know they can be a bit pickier, and they're they're going to be uh, more risk averse in this kind of environment. The owners, if they're cash flowing and their loan is current and they've got some term left on the loan, they're not going to want to sell. Why should I sell? I'll just hold on to this for now. As long as my fund structure allows me to continue to hold it, I'm going to sell. I'm not going to take a loss until somebody forces me to, to take a loss. And that's just normal human behavior. Nobody wants to take a loss, and so they're going to put it off as long as they can. So you got those those two kind of behavioral things as a division between where the buyers and sellers are. In terms of who has to give first, uh, there is a you know there is a wall of debt maturities out there, and there's going to be for the current owners much more pressure to start to capitulate. Uh, but we can think. Let's think of this in the in the positive sense. You know, the the buyers might suddenly decide that uh, they want to jump in if if income growth starts to accelerate, if the economy grows at a faster pace, and you know people get more comfortable there. Uh, but you know, you look at the job numbers. You know, they've been good, but it's not—it's not you know blowing the roof off like in the past. Uh, even though you've had some good GDP numbers, there's still there's still concerns about the economy. But maybe maybe that turns around, and maybe that'd be the thing I look at if if I want to see the the buyers come in off the sidelines. Uh, in addition to cheaper debt and uh, uh, prices going down, the other thing I look for is if they suddenly have a change in expectations and income. None of those. Uh, well, rather, all those seem like uh, lower probability scenarios. So uh, the higher probability scenario is probably around the sellers moving. So your money's on sellers, uh, at least giving a little bit. Yeah, yeah. It's not just about loss aversion, though, isn't it? Like people hate loss. Everyone, no one wants to take a loss. But it's also people don't even, they get an idea of what something's worth in their mind. And they can't even adjust to it being less than that. Yeah, the, it, the, you bring up a good point. It does take time for information to flow through into the commercial real estate market. And this is this is something that, so I'm here at MSCI, big global producer of indexes on the public markets. And I'll talk with some of my research colleagues on the public equity side. And they're just fascinated by the fact that you can't get all the information on the market right from a Bloomberg terminal. Uh, and they're fascinated when I tell them things like, oh, yeah, I went to this conference. I'm talking with people and here's what people are talking about and the sense of where the market's going. And the reaction is, what, you have to talk to people to 
figure out what's happening in the marketplace. It's 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 an opaque market, and so the information. It's a very old-fashioned so market, really, isn't it? It's almost like market day. You know, the day we'd all go into town to sell horses or whatever. We'd have a chat. Oh, exactly, exactly. Oh, you know, there are structurally important conferences in the commercial real estate world where pricing is set. The Crefsi and MBA meetings in the spring and winter of every year really sets the stage for what the capital financing side is going to be for the year. The ULI conferences bring together the brokers and the managers, and that really uh, sets the tone for helping to understand sort of the quantity of assets available in the marketplace. Uh, uh, meetings like uh, MIPAM and Expo Real over in Europe do the same thing, bringing everybody together, but bring also some of the capital sources in there to understand uh, what the appetite uh, for the capital will be to get into different funds. And, and those are structurally important things because it's not, it's not as easy to measure through surveys and you know, through uh, direct data management. So it's, it's a lot of chatting and just getting a sense from people where they're going to go. <laughs> so, so, but the point is, is that there isn't a lot of transparency into this particular into this particular market. So people still can't accept they, a lot of it is in some way set by how much they think their asset is worth. Yeah. And it takes time. Um, it takes time for information to flow into the behavior for commercial real estate. Part of it's structural. If I raise money from outside investors and I promise them a certain return level, I have a certain amount of time in place to put that money to work. And I'm not going to go back to them and say, Hey, listen, uh, I promised you uh, a 12% return, but I'm only going to be able to get 8%. I'm going to keep looking for a while and trying to execute to the 12% return before I go back to them and tell them I can't do eight because I've got another issue. If I go back to them and say, well, I can't do 12, I might only do eight. Uh, they might decide to say, listen, we like you, but uh, uh, we're out. <laughs> and then you don't have the money to execute anymore. So that, that kind of thing takes time for people to figure out. And it's a lot of, you know, finding deals isn't as simple as just, again, going up on a terminal and just looking up deals. It's visiting markets, talking to brokers, and uh, kicking the tires to find uh, investment opportunities. But then there's things like I read in one of MSCI's reports that 50% of investment properties in London and Hong Kong could be worth less than what they were acquired for. So are people just saying, oh, so they're reading that information. Are they just saying, oh, that's not me. That's somebody else. That's not my property. That's another property. <laughs> well, but it's, but it's also, it's also, it, yeah, there's always going to be some of that. It's all, you're always going to face that it's somebody else's problem. But if I own that asset and I'm cash flowing, sure, if I sold the building today, I might not get the price I paid for it. But if my loan is current, and it's generating some income, I'll wait because asset values are down because of this capital markets change. The increase in interest rates is changing the financing situation, but there is an expectation that that's a temporary move and that financing becomes cheaper in the future. Now, how much cheaper? That's a, that's a huge question. I don't know. If I could forecast interest rates, I'd be a very wealthy man. But the, the, the you know, expectation, just looking at the SOFR curve, the forward curve there, 
there is an expectation that it is going to be a little less expensive in the future. And so some of those folks are looking at this and thinking, okay, I'll wait. I'll, I'll see what happens. If, again, it's a loss aversion thing. If I don't have to take the loss today, I'm not going to do it. I'm going to wait. Uh, but it's, um, you know, it, it's, it's that combination of behaviors. It just makes people wait. So that number that you gave right at the top of our conversation, 2%, less than 2% of sales are actually distressed sales. Do you think that number is going to tick up as people start facing reality and, and things, you know, unavoidable issues start coming up, which is their loans coming due? Yeah, I think, you know, those unavoidable issues, they are out there. You, you have uh, a big amount of distress and potential distress. And, you know, in an environment where prices have been down, as those lease maturities start rolling through, uh, a certain percentage of them will get solved by bringing in outside equity, uh, by you know, uh, selling off another property in your portfolio and you know, transferring the, the, the capital over. But there's some folks who are just not going to be able to do any of that. And, and that will generate more of that distress activity. Uh, how much more? I don't know. And the timing of it, that too, I don't know. Except to say it won't be as fast as in the financial crisis because there is, uh, everyone has a little more leeway uh, this time through. And so it's going to be very much a, a market that favors. And for those buyers looking for distressed stuff, it's also going to favor the people who have been picking through every deal in every market and you know have relationships where they can maybe be the person who comes in and uh, rescues somebody. That's Jim Costello. He's the chief economist and investment research firm MSCI's real assets team. Other stories on our website right now, we've been covering earnings calls. Um, we have stories out on BXP, JLL and Cushman and Wakefield. We also have a feature taking a close look at multifamily REITs. I've left links in the show notes. I'm Miriam Hall. Thanks for listening.